This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. One of the great benefits of studying at Westminster Seminary, California, is the opportunity it gives both faculty and students to meet and learn from scholars from all over the world. This week, we were blessed to have on campus to speak in one of our classes, Dr. Dolph Tavelda, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology in the Theological University of the Liberated Reformed Churches in Kampen, the Netherlands. He's also Associate Professor of Historical Theology in the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Leuven, Belgium. He joins us today to talk about his research, about how he became a minister, and about the value of studying classic Reformed theology. Hi, Dolph, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. How are you? How was your trip? Yes, it was fine. And what brings you to what is ordinarily sunny San Diego? It's not quite so. Yeah, we have had some sun. So the reason for my coming here is uh, the big uh, Evangelical Theological Society conference in San Diego, and then also the AAR and SBL conference. And did you give a paper? Yes, I gave a paper on irresistible grace. Oh, and was it irresistibly attended? Or? Sure, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, there's a, a lot of enthusiasm about um, the uh, so-called five points or the canons of Dort, you know, since we've just completed the 400th anniversary. Yeah, that's right. And I try to tag into that. And um, I try to explain that there is more to Dort and more to Calvinism than just the five points. Exactly, yeah. And that's a favorite theme of ours. As important as the canons are, and they are very important, you certainly can't reduce Reformed theology to five points of soteriology. Right. Yeah, very good. Well, it's been good to have you here on campus. Dr. Develd also spoke to one of our seminars about an important work with which the listener may or may not be familiar, and we'll, we'll get to that. It's the Synopsis of Purer Theology, and we'll come back and talk about that. But let's get to know you a little bit, Dolph. First of all, tell us where you teach. Just judging from your accent, the listener will guess that sure, you're probably yeah. not from the United States. No, right. I'm from the Netherlands. So I teach at the Theological University of Kampen in the Netherlands. It is a seminary connected to the Reformed Churches Liberated, and I teach systematic theology there. Tell us a little bit about the school where you teach, and what does it mean to be in the Reformed Churches Liberated? What is that? <laughs> yeah, okay. So the seminary is, I think, about 140 or 150 students. Uh, we have a bachelor's program and a master's program, but we also have, I think, 30 or 40 PhD students. Faculty is about 15 or 20 people, some of them part-time, some of them full-time. It's a wonderful place to be. And the churches, the liberated reformed churches, well, that's a, it's a, long a history, story. Yeah. As, yeah, that's, um, yeah, so Dutch church history is very complicated starting from the 19th century. So very briefly, they had a secession from the large reformed church in 1834. There was another split in at the end of the 19th century, and these two splits merged into one Reformed Churches uh, of the Netherlands. GKN is the abbreviation in, uh, in, in Dutch. So that uh, one of the big leaders of that united church was Abraham Kuyper. He is well-known also uh, among Christians in the, in the States. But Abraham Kuyper had some, well, difficult, confused doctrines, so to speak, about presumptive regeneration. And 
in the 1930s and 1940s, these ideas of Kuiper were debated and there was a controversy over them. One of the leading theologians at that time was Klaas Schilder, and he opposed the ideas of Kuiper and he developed a more covenantal theology. And ultimately, in 1944, there was a church split over this controversy and Schilder and his followers went out of the larger denomination, and that's what we call the liberation. All right. And so you are connected to the uh, Canadian Reformed Churches yeah. and the American Reformed Churches. Yeah, that's right. Those yeah. are the American versions of the liberated churches. We had Herman Zelderheis in studio okay. uh, a few yeah. months ago, and, and we got a little bit of a sense from him about the state of the church in the Netherlands, but he comes from a slightly different tradition from yours. So how does the church situation in 2019 look in the Netherlands? Yeah, okay, yes. Uh, so, uh, Herman Selderhuis is a member of the Christelijke Gereformeerde Kerken, Christian Reformed Churches, but that here that's, just, yeah. I think, free reformed. Free reformed, yeah. Yeah, so that's a bit confusing. Yes, so, in is. the Netherlands, we are free, <laughs> and they are Christian, but yeah. here they are free. Yeah. So, since 1944, things have developed, so we had a very strong insistence on the doctrine of the covenant, and we still have that. We also had a very strict doctrine of the true church. My church was very confessional, orthodox, and I think over the past two or three decades we have seen a move towards a more relaxed approach to doctrine. Uh, my church has always been very open to culture and society, so that's part of the neo-Calvinist tradition. And, yeah, well, that has resulted in some changes of approach. So, in general, the climate has become less on emphasizing the distinctive features and more looking for the commonalities with other Christians, also making positive connections to surrounding society. So that's what we have arrived at in the early 21st century. I appreciate that summary. The whole religious situation in Europe has become complicated, too, by patterns of immigration, how are the Reformed Christians negotiating those challenges? On the one hand, it's a cultural and religious challenge. On the other hand, it seems to me it also presents a, an opportunity for mission, right? The world, in a sense, has come to the Netherlands instead of the Netherlands coming to the world. Yeah, okay. This is not a topic I so often reflect on deeply. So for my denomination, the arrival of immigrants, yeah, there are different groups of immigrants. The main focus is on refugees, mm -hmm. so people coming from the Middle East, coming from Africa for several reasons, reasons of war, reasons of poverty. This creates tensions in the society of the Netherlands, but mostly the churches are on the side of welcoming these people, uh, making connections, inviting them for worship service, including them in Bible study groups, and so on. So, yeah... This is part of the life of the church to have these people from all different countries and try to make them feel at home. On the other hand, you see, as you indicated, so the world is coming to the Netherlands. And in missionary terms, this is not so much that the churches in the Netherlands are trying to reach out to these people, but the other way around. So people from Africa or from Asia are coming to the Netherlands and they want to mission the Netherlands because of the strong uh, secularization. So... Indeed, that changes the whole picture. Oh, interesting. So the Netherlands are now a, a mission, mission field, field yeah, right. for Christians. Yeah, especially in the larger cities. So in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, The Hague, and so on, you see that immigrant churches are very active and evangelizing. And yeah, for the 
well-established churches that have been in the Netherlands for some centuries. That's a new challenge. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to Professor Dolph Teveld about his life in the Netherlands, about the status of Christianity in the Netherlands, and also about his work in the history of Reformed theology. Just a little bit more about you before we dive into your research interests. You know, you and I both teach in a seminary context, and so we teach students who are on their way to pastoral ministry. How did you become a professor in a theological university, in a seminary? And I assume you're also a minister, but I should ask. Yeah, well, I think my interest uh, in theology started in my early childhood. My father was a minister and then moved into a position of being a seminary professor. So the path was ready for me, so to speak. So at home we had discussions about sermons, going to church, all different topics. As a child, I read many books about church history and I found it fascinating. So I just was very eager to know about these things. In high school, I took a program with Latin and Greek. Uh, That's in the Netherlands, that's required for starting a theological training. Um, so then I ended up in seminary, and um, at that time I wanted to become a minister, but I realized that at the age of 24 I would be very young to serve a congregation. I also had a very strong interest in doing scholarly work in theology to have a more penetrating analysis of different topics, especially the doctrine of God had my interest because at that time I thought that the Reformed tradition had gone wrong on the topic of theology proper. So I started a PhD research, and I got a paid job for that, so that was wonderful. They started to have research assistants, so I was a research assistant in systematic theology for six or seven years, and I worked on my dissertation on the doctrine of God. I actually discovered that things didn't go wrong in the Reformed tradition, so that brought me to a very much more positive understanding of classical Reformed theology as it was done in the 16th and 17th century. I find that personally interesting because the narrative you just sketched is a trajectory that I've seen in students. We often have or sometimes have students who come in with one perception of Reformed Orthodoxy, and then they, as we say back home, they get to reading it, and they discover a world that they didn't really know existed. So what happened to you as you were reading Reformed Orthodoxy? Yeah, the idea I started with was that by making use of philosophical categories, Reformed theology alienated itself from the biblical understanding of God. But then I actually started reading these texts. I did so in connection with a research group at Utrecht University. So in the Netherlands, that was a very important place where they were studying Reformed scholasticism. Professors there were Antoni Vos and Willem van Asselt. They published widely about all different topics related to Reformed scholasticism, but also connecting it back to medieval scholasticism, so the great teachers, Thomas Aquinas, John Duns Scotus, and so on. And for me, that was a real discovery to see that behind these technical terms and distinctions, there was a complete world of Christian thinking and elaborating the implications of the Christian faith. So when you start with the Apostles' Creed and confess that God is the creator of heaven and 
earth. So much is included in that. And then I learned that medieval scholasticism was not just surrendering to Aristotle, but using Aristotle to spell out the implications of the Christian faith. So that was wonderful. When I talk about it, I again feel the sense of awe and wonder that I had when discovering this for the first time. Well, I can hear it in your voice, and I can see it in your face, and I understand it because the same thing happened to me. You know, we sort of inherit, and maybe the listeners had this experience too, we've inherited a narrative about what happened to Reformed theology, that it was really good in the 16th century, and then as things went on, it sort of became corrupt, was corrupted by Aristotelianism, the use of philosophy, and and, uh, eventually the Bible got replaced by Aristotle. And sometimes I tell my students that the story is that, you know, Calvin was walking along and somewhere about, you know, 1630, he got mugged (laughs) and replaced or something. And uh, of course, if one actually sits down and reads these texts, as you say, there's a depth and a warmth to them that one would not expect judge if we only went by the kinds of summaries that used to get published. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also important in understanding what Reformed scholastic theology is about is to understand the genre. So Calvin was a brilliant biblical teacher. He wrote his commentaries. He studied uh, scripture very profoundly, and he gave the fruits of his study in his works. But then the next stage is how you can instruct people to do something similar. So Calvin just was a genius, I think. But ordinary people are not geniuses, but they have to learn how to read the Bible and how to expound the doctrine that is given to us in the Bible. And that's, well, that is what scholasticism does. It's classroom teaching. So scholasticism for many people has a bad sound about it, but it's just what we do when we train people, when we instruct them how to do it in a methodologically sound way. What are the concepts you have to use? How can you explain what you read in scripture? How can you connect the different topics and examine the implications? So... Yeah, scholastic theology is in continuity with the substantial teaching of the Reformation. It's this basic same gospel, but it is transmitted in a different structure for the sake of classroom instruction and preparing people for the ministry. Also for enabling them to participate in debates, ecclesiastical debates. So they had the fights with the Roman Catholics, they had the fights with the Lutherans, later they had other fights. Arguments with Socinians and the Remonstrants, we know them as Arminians in America. So there were a whole variety of movements that developed after Calvin that were more sophisticated and presented challenges in certain respects that Calvin didn't necessarily face in the same way. And we had to develop new and in some ways more sophisticated responses. It wasn't simply enough to go back and quote Luther, quote Calvin. We had to develop responses, in a sense, on our own, drawing from them, but applying what we learned from them to new and different circumstances. Yeah. So I think that's a very deep motivation for doing theology, that you want to, Apostle Paul says it, that you take responsibility for what you believe and you want to explain it to people. So the apologetic motive in theology is part of what makes scholastic theology to what it is. And it would be unfaithful to Calvin to refuse to do so because he did it in his own time, in his own way. And you have to continue when the frontiers of polemics change, then you have to address these new questions and you have to find new ways to refine, elaborate and defend reform doctrine given the objections by opponents, yes. 
I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and the central truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. One of the challenges that uh, they faced as the 17th century progressed is what you uh, described in class today as early modernity, that uh, the beginnings of what we come to know as the Enlightenment are beginning to show up in the 17th century. And this is going to require a new degree of sophistication and, in a sense, nimbleness on the part of Orthodox Reformed pastors and theologians and apologists, because the challenge of modernity by the middle of the 17th century and the end of the 17th century is going to be one of the greatest challenges that the Church maybe has ever faced. Yeah, true, but it's um, a story that includes many levels of explanation. So early modernity itself, I think, is a neutral term. It in just indicates a period in history. But there were some trends underway, and some of these trends became stronger during the 17th century. One of the important trends is the relation between human reason and divine revelation. So starting from the Middle Ages and continuing in Reformed theology in the 17th century, there is the, the idea that there is a fundamental harmony between reason and revelation. So We can only know God because he reveals himself in scripture. But then we can think about it. And what we understand by reason can help us to clarify, to have a deeper understanding. But it is not in conflict with scriptural revelation. Then other groups advocated that reason should have priority. We should accept only things that our reason can understand. And then you, of course, have problems with doctrines of the Trinity, the two natures of Christ because they do not fit into our normal human categories and then you see that the picture changes. So that's one of the important discussions. Also on a more fundamental level, entire philosophical outlook changes with René Descartes, the famous French philosopher, with Baruch de Spinoza, the Jewish philosopher. You see a shift of paradigm that's, yeah, in the end made it impossible for theology to express itself in the traditional ways, making use of Aristotelian philosophy because, well, the philosophical discourse was moving into an entirely different direction. And so Reformed Orthodoxy faced some really formidable challenges from 1650 to, say, 1750 that required a really remarkable, in a sense, expansion of our bag of tools. One of the fellows with whom I know you're familiar, the listener may have heard his name, is Gisbertus Fuchs. Yeah. He faces Descartes squarely. Why did he find Cartesian philosophy and Descartes so threatening, and why did he respond so strongly? Okay, that's a challenging question because I'm not an expert on Fuchsius. He's just one of the many professors I have included in my research. But Fuchsius was part of this fundamental debate with uh, Cartesians. I think the main point was where does our knowledge start with? 
And if we stretch that question to how can we know God, is it because God makes himself known? Well, the principle of doubt, methodical doubt, which Descartes promotes, has the implication that you start in the human subject and that you determine from the human subject what can be true. And so that for Fuchs and other reformed, that was not only dangerous, but it was really inconceivable that you could start thinking about God by taking your own subject and your own subjective doubt as the first principle. So for Descartes, he says, I am doubting. And the thing he knows with certainty is that I exist and that I'm doubting. And from there, he wants to reason to truth. And Fuchs and the others who are criticizing Descartes say, no, we start with God. God is. God revealed himself. And God speaks. And that's how we know truth. And he made us in his image. And so you have two fundamentally conflicting systems. And what made it complicated in some ways is that Descartes was ostensibly setting out to defend the Christian faith. But he was going to defend the Christian faith on distinctly modern premises and terms. So I think Fuchs knew intuitively, and maybe more deeply than that, that in his attempt to defend the faith, Descartes was actually giving up the faith implicitly. Yeah. So it seemed nice that Descartes gave his own proof for the existence of God based on the idea of God we have in our minds. But Fuchs sensed that that would invert the order of reasoning. Also, on the religious terms, they found it profoundly offensive against God to start with doubt. How could we ever doubt God when he tells us about him? And they saw as the other consequence of Descartes' reasoning that you would end up with atheism because human subjectivity would not be able to warrant true knowledge about God. So if you start with human knowledge, then you will end up with no knowledge of God. So there was really something at stake in these debates. And you certainly wouldn't end up with saving knowledge on a traditional uh, reformed understanding. You know, what you know from nature and from self, you know that God is and you know that he's a judge. And, uh, you know, there are, it's a short list, but you're certainly not getting to God, the son becoming incarnate, one God, three persons, the obedience, death, resurrection, any of the things. Yeah, that that's they, right. Yeah. Right? So you don't get the gospel. You only get law and natural law and condemnation in spiritual terms, but you don't get salvation. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This is interesting that we get here. We're talking to Dolph Develd, who teaches in the Theological University of the Liberated Churches in the Kampen in the Netherlands. And he is a scholar of the Synopsis Purioris Theologiae. Did I get that right? Yeah. The Synopsis of Purer Theology. And he's here on campus today, and he's been talking with our students about this project. And this is a project with which, again, the listener may or may not be familiar, but this was an important project after the Synod of Dort. So we've just finished celebrating the Synod and Canons of Dort. And in 1625, a group of four professors published a multi-volume work setting forth to the world in Latin, what is it that the Orthodox Reformed believe? Did I get that right? Yeah, sure. So tell us a little bit about this work. And the listener should know that this is an English translation. It's got Latin on one page and English on the other. And uh, you may or may not want to rush out and buy this. But if you're interested, consult a library or find a way to take a look at these volumes. So what is interesting about this synopsis of a pure theology is indeed that it was published right after the Synod of Dort. So in the early 17th century, the churches in the Netherlands had been heavily divided uh, by the controversies uh, around uh, Jacob Arminius. 
And also the theological faculty at Leiden University had had very difficult times because of these controversies. So after orthodoxy had been re-established at the Synod, the faculty was again had a full staffing with four professors and they wanted to show to the world that, yeah, well, uh, reformed theology was continuing there in a proper way. And especially interesting then is that they did it with four professors together. So they did not want to show their personal individual preferences, but they presented the joint position they wanted to defend as being pure reformed doctrine. The book originated in the actual practice of university disputations. So at a time as part of the instruction, they required the students to participate in oral disputations. They had a topic assigned to them and they had to defend the different aspects of this topic. And for the synopsis book, the professors wrote all these disputations. They took turns in discussing each of the individual topics. And then after these disputations were actually done during the years 1620 to 1624, they put things together and made it into a book. So this practice of disputation is roughly similar to what we might know as debates today. Yeah. Not exactly the same, but somewhat like that. So if the listener might think back to high school or go back and look at your high school yearbook, you'll see there was a debate club. And in debate club, the director would assign a topic and they would divide up into teams and each team would research a different side and then practice making arguments on one side or the other. This is somewhat like that. Yeah, I think the main difference is that in the early 17th century, the university disputations were not completely free debates. So the students were not free to choose their position and to choose their arguments. So there was a discourse created by the professor and the students just, well, basically had to defend the professor's opinions. But they had to do so by making good arguments, by clarifying the definitions, by replying to objections. So they had to show that they really mastered what the professor had taught them. But it was on a common framework of reform tradition that they had to base their arguments. And sometimes you see that the students bring in some new material by themselves. Uh, so this is very interesting to see that the early modern university was a joint enterprise of professors who were teaching and students who were learning. But then some of the students, just as it is today, turned out to be very brilliant minds and they could contribute themselves to the topics. The synopsis also gives us a great picture into what the Orthodox were teaching in the Netherlands, which is what it was intended to do, after Dort, and to show that there was a consensus, there was agreement, and here's where we came out on a whole series of questions, more or less going from the beginning of the faith to the end of it, as it were. Yeah, so the synopsis is a comprehensive survey of the, all the topics of doctrine. It starts with scripture, then moves on to God and the doctrine of the Trinity, and then follows a sort of historical explanation of creation, uh, sin, redemption, until the doctrine of the last things, eschatology. And what strikes me in the presentation is that the synopsis does not emphasize the differences. It does not, mostly not explicitly engage the previous debates with Arminius and the remonstrance. So these are mostly silent, because the Synod of Dort had been clear about that, and they just give a positive, constructive exposition of the doctrines, including lots of biblical material, getting back to the church fathers, 
and just building the arguments that are necessary for rightly expounding and defending the Reformed faith. Well, Dolph, it has been great to have you on campus. I know the students very much enjoyed hearing the presentation about the synopsis, and uh, it's been good for you and me to sit and talk and find out about our different worlds and how much alike they are and how different they are in some ways. Yeah, it really was my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.